Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's actually just within a day's journey of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in his sights. And we read this. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week, Jesus spoke about something that was very uncomfortable. Sin, hell. And for many of us, that warning was not only uncomfortable, it was actually, for many of us, very illuminating to the extent to which Jesus was warning sin and hell, their realities, their things that we need to be very wary of and, and have caution toward. This week, Jesus is confronted by this group of Pharisees on his way to Jerusalem, and he's questioned now about divorce. Again, a very uncomfortable topic for many of us in this room. And I asked this last week, who wants my job today? (laughs) In all seriousness, I realize that when I mention divorce, even the mention of that word, there are a range of emotions and circumstances in this room. And because of that, I have to admit, I cannot speak to every single circumstance, every single particular life situation. So I have to admit, with the limited time that we have, we're going to be constrained in exactly what we can talk about. But because I can't speak to every circumstance and because Jesus is very clear here about his design for marriage and the limitations he's placed on divorce, because I can't get to everything, what I want to do this morning is I want to give instructions on how to listen to this sermon, okay? Because it's very sensitive in nature. So there is, as I kind of calculated, maybe four groups of people here this morning. The first group of you, some of you, when we're talking about marriage, your first thought is, I am so glad my husband is here to hear this message. Or I am so glad that my wife is here to hear this message. They really need to hear this. If that's you this morning, then I would ask you, as we go through this sermon, pray. Pray to God, the Holy Spirit, that he would actually soften your heart to keep yourself in mind as we go through this message. God has you here for a reason, just as much as your spouse. So that's the first group. There's another group of people here, and you hear divorce, and immediately you are filled with regret. 
you are immediately filled with regret and it's very hard for you to hear the words of this sermon. And if that's you, I would encourage you, remember, the very one who spoke these words, Jesus, is a God of forgiveness and grace and restoration and he has you here for a reason. Even though these words are going to be hard to hear because Jesus is very clear, he has you here for a reason. And I would encourage you in your free time, look at Jesus' posture toward those who are actually divorced. Go to John chapter 4 when you get home and his interaction with the woman at the well. So that's the second category of people. The third category, some of you, you may just be angry. And now, I'm used to people being angry at me, so that's okay. But I would ask that you would pray throughout this sermon that God would give you a tender and open heart to receive these hard words from Jesus and to do so in humility, being open-handed, that he might have some correction for all of us this morning. Lastly, fourth group, those of you who are not married or have never been married, you are single or you're young and you're not at the age of marriage yet, my encouragement for you would be, Listen to this sermon and realize what God's creational intention was for marriage and how that applies to the various relationships in your life and, Lord willing, when God provides you a spouse or a partner in the future. So that's how you listen to this sermon. Have I hit everybody? (laughs) All right, let's pray. God, we need your grace this morning. Uh, Jesus, these are words that, for many of us, admittedly, are challenging And we need your grace. We need you especially to comfort us this morning and cast our eyes to you, the one who gives us these words, and remember your character, your disposition, and your posture to sinners like us, sinners like me. And we pray this all in your glorious and wonderful name. Amen. All right, so this morning we've already read through Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at three headings in Mark chapter 10. The first is this. We're going to look at Jesus entering hostile territory. We're going to look at really just the context around this discussion that Jesus has with the Pharisees around the issue of marriage and divorce. Then we're going to look at this hostile question, this hostile question that's directed at Jesus from the Pharisees who have come to trap him. And then lastly, we're going to see Jesus' hostile answer back to the Pharisees. So, Let's set the context of what Jesus says here by first looking at Jesus entering hostile territory. You see this in verse 1. Beginning in chapter 10, we read that Jesus left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. This beyond the Jordan is very important here. Jesus is in an area known as Perea. It's an area that's ruled by Herod Antipas. And if you followed along with us throughout the Gospel of Mark, that name Herod Antipas should be familiar because Herod and the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, had once had a very severe confrontation. You remember John the Baptist, he was this influential prophet. And just like many of the prophets in the Old Testament, many of the prophets who went before him, John spoke truth to power. John called Herod a leader of God's people to account because he was living in sin. You see, Herod had divorced his wife because he had secretly fallen in love with his still-living half-brother Philip's wife, whose name was Herodias. Herod divorces his wife. So Herodias, after this divorce, she decides 
Because I'm also in love with Herod, I'm going to divorce Philip. And now that Herod and Herodias are divorced, they decide, now that we're no longer brother and sister-in-law, we can marry each other. It sounds like the Maury show, doesn't it? That's what's going on in this scene. And what does John the Baptist do? Well, he speaks truth to power. He calls Herod to account. He says, Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Leviticus says... If a man takes a brother's wife, it is impurity. It is wrong. You are living in a way that is sinful in the eyes of God. You're condoning sin. And what's more, you're condoning divorce for the people that you're ruling over. Herod, you need to repent. You need to turn back to God. You need to seek forgiveness. What you are doing is not right. And predictably, Just like the prophets in the Old Testament, just like many of the prophets that went before John the Baptist, John is seized by Roman authorities, he's thrown into a Roman prison by Herod, and he's eventually executed by beheading. And here you have Jesus, who, like John the Baptist, is agitating religious and political leaders, who, like John the Baptist, is speaking truth to power, who, like John the Baptist, is calling people of all kinds, whether it's Pharisees, Sadducees, Jews, Gentiles, rulers, everyone else, to repent, to turn back to God and seek forgiveness for their sins. And Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, in the wake of John the Baptist, is now entering Perea, ruled by Herod Antipas. This is the scene that you see Jesus walking into. Now, have you guys ever heard that man? His name is uh, John Williams. John Williams is this famous composer. He's, you know, composed maybe uh, some of the most influential film scores in history. He's been nominated 53 times for an Academy Award. Movies like Jaws, dun and dun and Movies like E.T., Schindler's List, Jurassic Park. Maybe the most well-known is the Imperial March from Star Wars Episode Five. You all know it. How does it go? Dun, dum, 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 dum. The first time that I heard that, I knew right away. I was only eight years old, but I knew right away something bad's going to happen. Something bad is going to happen. Darth Vader, the Empire, they are on a march, and there's going to be hostility. And you can feel that hostility here in verse 1. You can hear all of the hostility, all of the tension around Jesus, John the Baptist, Herod, all coming to a head as Jesus walks into Perea. And here's what makes matters worse. We know Herod, along with all of the Pharisees, have been plotting, they have been scheming, and they have been seeking an opportunity to destroy Jesus. You remember, back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus was going into a synagogue. He was teaching, as was usual. And as he goes into this synagogue, he sees this man who has a withered hand. He had had a withered hand from birth. And we're told that all of the religious leaders are looking out at Jesus to see whether or not he's going to heal this man on the Sabbath. Because they had this view that you cannot work on the Sabbath. Therefore, you cannot heal on the Sabbath. So what does Jesus do? He heals the man. He tells the man, stretch forth your hand and be healed. And miraculously, Jesus restores this man's hand to perfect function. And then we read, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him. How 
to destroy him. See, this is the opportunity. The Herodians, the Pharisees, they see Jesus walking into Perea and they realize, here's our time. Here's our chance. Finally, we can trap Jesus. And that's the context for the question that the Pharisees ask Jesus in verse number two. They ask Jesus, verse two, the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Keep in mind, this is not an intellectually honest question. This is not a sincere desire for Jesus to answer their most vexing theological problems. This is not a question in search of an answer. No, it's a question meant to discredit Jesus, to trap Jesus, and put Jesus in the crosshairs of Herod. You can hear the imperial march in this question, can't you? It's a question meant to destroy Jesus. That's what that word test actually means. It's the Greek word perazo. It's a word only used by two groups of people in all of the Gospel of Mark. The first is the Pharisees here and in one other place. You know the other person that this is attributed to? Satan. This is not an intellectually honest question. They mean to trap Jesus and put him in the crosshairs of Herod. So you see, when it comes to these Pharisees, their question is meant to destroy him. This is hostile territory. That's the context that Jesus is walking into. And now when you see again, verse 2, notice the question that they ask him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is a hostile question. I've been married now for 11 years, or going on 11 years, and I've learned there are some questions you just don't answer. <laughs> you just don't answer. Do these pants look funny to you? Does this dinner taste bad? These are kind of questions that there are no good answers to because they're loaded questions. In the question itself are loaded an a type of question, there's loaded in this question something that if you answer, it's going to explode in your face. You just don't answer it. And the Pharisees here who've been seeking this opportunity to destroy Jesus are asking a loaded question. This question of divorce and remarriage, this is the very question that occasioned the beheading, the imprisonment, and the arrest of John the Baptist. Though the question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The real question loaded into the question is, do you, like John the Baptist, think that Herod's marriage to Herodias is unlawful? What says you, Jesus? And it's important to realize here, notice what is not happening. This is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not simply on his way to Jerusalem and then feels the need to talk to everybody about how if you got a divorce, then you're living in sin. That's not Jesus' intent here. And the reason I mention that is because many will teach on divorce and they'll use this text and they'll see, see how much Jesus dislikes divorce. But that's not Jesus' posture. Jesus is merely walking and he's entering hostile territory. He's asked this hostile question. And Jesus says, well, okay, if you really want to know what I think about these things, Pharisees, if you really want to try and trap me, then okay, let's talk about it. And Jesus answers, like he usually does, the question of the Pharisees with a question himself. He says, verse 3, what did Moses command you? What does the Old Testament say? You guys are legal scholars. You should know the Bible. What does the Old Testament say? Does Moses give a man permission to get a divorce? And the Pharisees say, well, yeah. 
Yeah, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And here's what the Pharisees are referring to. They're referring to a passage in Deuteronomy 24, where there Moses is writing out laws for the people of God. And he writes this. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he then goes on to say he can write out a certificate of divorce, he can give it to her, and then she's free to go marry another person. That's what the Pharisees are referring to here. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And they're saying, see, Moses gave us permission. He gave us these certificates of divorce. If a man finds something indecent in his wife, he can give her a certificate, send her away. That means it's lawful to get a divorce. Just make sure you have the proper paperwork filled out and you're going to be okay. God approves of divorce. And this is one of the areas where surprisingly... The Pharisees in our broader culture actually have a lot of overlap, don't they? The Pharisees, in fact, believe that divorce should be both permissible and easy. And if you want to add this to it, they also thought that it should be acceptable. For that reason, they allowed divorce for any number of reasons. In fact, early Jewish writings that were looking at Deuteronomy 24, it's known as the Mishnah. One rabbi said this, quote, a man may divorce his wife even due to a minor issue, even if she burned or oversalted his food. That is what it means when it says he has found some indecency in her. See, they took that term, indecency, and they tried to pack in, well, just anything you could put in there, right? Burn my food, didn't put enough butter on my toast, didn't make me coffee this morning. If that happens, indecency, you're gone. Here's your certificate of divorce. Don't let the doorknob hit you on the way out. Another rabbi put it this way. He said, a man may divorce his wife even if he found another wife who is better looking than her and wishes to marry her. That is what it means when it says she finds no favor in his eyes. I'm not even going to try and make a joke about that. <laughs> Whatever the case is, burnt toast, forget to do the laundry, wife doesn't rub your face, all of these are grounds for divorce. Divorce should be permissible, easy, and acceptable. That was the view of Herod, wasn't it? Think about Herod. I don't love my wife anymore. I love Herodias now. I made a mistake in marrying my wife, therefore I should be able to easily get out of this marriage with my wife, and everyone else should view it as permissible and acceptable. And if you disagree with me, watch out. You know, several times in my life, I've had conversations with friends, loved ones who've sought divorce, and I just know, and, and I have some of these feelings myself, that, but the, the, the words that we put to our marriage, and when we're contemplating the struggles of our marriages and contemplating divorce, the, the tenor of those conversations sounds surprisingly similar to the Pharisees. We just grew apart, so we filed for divorce. I just don't feel the same way I did about him when we first met. The spark is gone. So I filed for divorce. We grew out of love. So I filed for divorce. He's not meeting my needs in, anymore. So I filed for divorce. We have irreconcilable differences. So we filed for divorce. I think separating will make us the most whole and authentic selves that we can be and we will be much happier. So... I filed for divorce. 
Our kids will be so much more loved and cared for if we separate. So we filed for divorce. He won't acknowledge all the ways that he's wronged me in the past and throughout our marriage, so I filed for divorce. I've fallen in love with another woman who really knows me and finally treats me with respect, so I filed for divorce. All of these views have striking, similar overlaps with the Pharisees. Uh, One author, his name was John Adams, he wrote in a book entitled Divorce, really a, a summary of maybe how we view the rationality for divorce in our culture. He wrote this. He said, your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change in personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital, searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two people to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can even be a personal triumph. Do you see the overlap? Hey, if your wife doesn't fulfill you anymore, if your husband doesn't give your life meaning and purpose like you had hoped, if you're no longer gratified sexually, no problem, write a certificate of divorce. It can even be a personal triumph. And notice what Jesus says in response to this. This is the Pharisees' answer. They said, see, indecency, you can pack anything into indecency. And notice Jesus' response in verse 5. He says, no, no, no. That's not why Moses wrote that. Moses was not seeking to make divorce easy, permissible, and acceptable, but he says, verse 5, it was because of your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment. Moses wrote that to restrain divorce so that marriage wouldn't become easy and permissible. It is because of the hard-heartedness of humanity which will find trivial reasons to divorce that God, through Moses, allowed these certificates. And now you have the Pharisees, 1,400 years after Moses wrote these words, trying to do the very thing Moses intended to forgive. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote this commandment, to restrain divorce in a sinful world, to actually put some sort of legal barrier in the way of divorce so that people could not just send their wife away for whatever reason that came to their mind. Now, I do have to be clear here. The Bible The New Testament specifically does outline situations where divorce is allowed. There are concessions that the Bible makes. Too explicitly, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 says that a person who is a victim of porneia, that's a Greek word, porneia, they may seek a divorce. Porneia is kind of this umbrella term, and it's a term that's usually translated sexual immorality. Under this umbrella falls all forms of unlawful sexual activity, whether it be marital unfaithfulness, adultery, sexual abuse, or any other sort of sexual activity that God considers sinful, which incidentally is probably what Moses meant by finding indecency in a woman in Deuteronomy 24. It's most likely what he's talking about is if you have found that your spouse has committed marital infidelity, you're able to seek a divorce. But 
If you are a victim of sexual abuse, hear this. If you have experienced the heartbreak of a spouse committing adultery, hear this. If you are the victim of sexual immorality in some way, hear this. God has mercy on you. He has given you an opportunity to say sometimes marriages can become so broken because of sexual infidelity. In those instances, it is allowable and you have biblical grounds for divorce. That's what the Bible says. We also see in 1 Corinthians that divorce is also allowable in the case of abandonment. And again, this is an another umbrella term. And it ranges from everything from literal desertion of an unbelieving spouse to physical, psychological, and emotional abuse. So... There are legitimate allowances for divorce. It is not God's intention for victims to suffer under the hands of abuse. It is not God's will for marriage to have a person forced to stay in a marriage where their life and the integrity of their marriage has been compromised by sexual or physical abuse of some sort. Because of our hardness of heart is why God gave us these allowances because we have so deviated from God's original design for marriage. He wants to protect the most vulnerable, protect those who are victims, and he's made these allowances and concessions in the marriage relationship. Everybody tracking with me? But that's not the Pharisees' posture here, is it? No, their posture, their desire was to make divorce acceptable, permissible, easy, and in so doing, they actually undermined the very reason that Moses gave the command in the first place. So Jesus, if you look at verses 10 through 12, calls a spade a spade. He says, no, actually, when it comes to a divorce for all those reasons you want to enumerate, there's one word for it, and it's adultery. That's the gravity of this posture that the Pharisees have. Jesus is saying, you are condoning adultery. And for all intents and purposes, this posture has been the posture toward marriage in the Western world for the last century. Divorce is not considered as a concession or allowance in the most dire circumstances. No, it's, it's considered as something that should be easy and permissible, acceptable. Anybody seen this Amazon commercial recently? I watched it uh, during the Super Bowl. It's where this bridesmaid is the last one to kind of enter uh, going into the, the church area and the bride is walking behind her and right before the bridesmaid gets into the church, she turns around and looks at the bride and says, cold feet, I get it. Commitment can be scary, but not when you're saving 15% with subscribe and save with Amazon. <laughs> and if things don't work out, you can always cancel. Seriously, no one will judge you if you call it off. Because that's our posture toward marriage, our posture toward divorce, it shouldn't surprise us that divorce has spiked over the last century. There was a Harvard sociologist, the first person to really track divorce rates in the United States. His name was Pitram Sorkin. He started tracking divorce rates back in 1910. In 1910, the divorce rate was 10%. By the year 1930, the rate had risen to 18%. By the year 1950, when he concluded his study, the rate had finally broken the 25% mark. Now, since 1975, the rate has never fallen below 48%. This posture, this posture toward marriage and divorce shows up even in the way that we speak about marriage. Sometimes we'll say, well, marriage is just a piece of paper. 
Or marriage should just come naturally. It shouldn't be this hard. Or marriage is about my personal happiness and fulfillment. Therefore, I'm not happy and I'm not personally filled, fulfilled. That calls the whole marriage into question. I notice myself falling into this posture regularly. You know, my wife Hannah and I, we've had times where we've struggled in our marriage. In fact, you know, the last three months, we've just both personally been in hard spots individually, and that's brought strain in our relationship. Plus, you had four kids and a dog, and it's just not good. And I, I know this about my wife, Hannah. She can drive better than me, and she lets me know that. And the other day, we're driving down the road, and, and she lets me know just how good of a driver she is by telling me just how bad of a driver I am. And, and I had to feel in that moment at my core, apart from God's intervening grace, all of the anger, all of the frustration, all of my hard heartedness towards marriage and toward my spouse came rushing in. And if there was a divorce attorney sitting in my passenger seat, not criticizing the way that I was driving, if he would have put divorce papers in front of me, I would have seriously considered it. Not really. (laughs) But the point being, I have this heart posture toward marriage that is far from the posture of God and Jesus. We all do. And notice what Jesus does next. We've seen him. He's entered hostile territory. He's received this hostile line of questioning meant to trap him. A question meant to put him in the crosshairs of Herod. And Jesus responds in kind with a hostile answer. Instead of quibbling about Moses and his allowances and concessions, Jesus brings the Pharisees back to creation, to God's original intention for the marriage relationship. And this hostile answer, by the way, it's not a fierce or combative, aggressive type of answer. No, it's hostile in the sense that it pushes back against our hard-heartedness and makes us reconsider things from the creational perspective of God. Notice what Jesus says. After saying, it's because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. Jesus says, verse 6, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And now I have to mention this because of the time that we live in. This is God's original design and purpose for marriage. And what you see clearly, very directly from the outside, is that God's original design for the marriage relationship is to be between one male and one female. Jesus is quoting here from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Remember the context of Genesis 1. God created heaven and earth. He creates light to shine in the darkness. He separates the sea from the sky. He divides sea from land. He creates fish, birds, animals. And then on the sixth day, he reaches his crescendo. He makes man, Adam and Eve, out of his own image. And when God creates Adam, originally God looks at Adam and says, it is not good that man should be alone. So God brings every animal one by one to Adam for him to name. But he says, out of these animals, no helper was suitable or fit for him. So in response, God puts Adam into a deep sleep. He takes a rib from the side of Adam 
and he fashions the first woman, Eve, from Adam's rib. And we read that the moment Adam's eyes were opened, Adam looks at his bride and he says this. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and the wife were both naked and not ashamed. Jesus reaffirms this creational design and purpose of God in the beginning, that marriage is one male, one female, exclusive, permanent. That's God's design. Same-sex marriage, whether it be male and male or female and female, was not God's purpose in the beginning. Now, we have to realize we can't tinker with this design for marriage without significant repercussions. We have taken God's design and purposes for marriage, and we have taken one of those components, this component of one man and one woman, and we have flipped it on its head, saying, well, man and woman is not essential to the design of marriage so long as it's exclusive and permanent. But realize, if we do that, if we say man and woman is not essential to marriage, what is to stop us from flipping or overturning the other components of marriage? For instance, if we're willing to flip and tinker with man and woman, why not tinker with one? Why not stop a marriage between two men and three women? Or three women and one man, or just four women? If they love each other and are committed to each other and they want to be exclusive with one another, what does that matter? If the component of male and female can be flipped, why not change all of the other components? Now, I know hearing that, some will have the question, and I resonate with this question because I have people in my life personally that are in same-sex marriages. So I resonate with this question and they ask, but what if two people love each other? Who are we to stand in the way of their happiness and fulfillment? If they want to express that love, who are we to stand in their way? And let me say, again, I appreciate the heart behind that question. There is a desire to sincerely love people with that sentiment. But, friends, you have to realize, we have to realize, that encouraging or celebrating someone to walk against God's design is not loving Encouraging someone to oppose God's purposes for marriage or anything else for that matter is not love. It is encouraging sin, whether homosexual or heterosexual. The only freedom, fulfillment, love, and life anyone can have is if they are renewed by the grace of God through faith and repentance in Jesus and by that grace begin to walk within God's purposes and design for their life. Only then can a person experience the love and life they were created for. The same is true with divorce, which is what Jesus is ultimately concerned about here, to encourage a person or tell a person, even if it's sincere, to tell a person, you will be better off if you leave them. Or to tell a person you will be so much happier if you end it with her. While that might sound merciful, that might sound loving, friends, it is never loving. It is never merciful to tell somebody to walk contrary to God's design. It never is. 
And that is Jesus' main purpose here. He is pushing back against the posture of the Pharisees who are resolutely walking against the creational purpose of God. They have taken allowances that God had given because of our hardness of heart, and they had made them normative, as if it is okay and merciful and loving to not honor the commitment of one man, one woman, exclusively committed permanently. And Jesus, pushing back against this posture, Jesus wants to highlight this fact that when man and woman come together, they are no longer two. He says, verse 8, they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. This is a profound mystery that the Bible gives us. God has brought together what was once separate, once divided, once disconnected and disparate. God has brought these two together and made one flesh. And this is a mystery. According to the Bible, this marriage relationship is actually a living illustration of Jesus and his people, Jesus and the church. One separate because of the hard-hearted rebellion of humanity, Jesus has now become one, one with his church through his perfect life and death. I've been married now for 11 years. And Hannah and I, and it'll be 11 years ago this August, we made vows to one another. And there's always this vow that sticks in my mind that we made. It's a line in these vows that says, all that I am and all that I have is yours. Every part of me now belongs to Hannah, whether good or bad. Hannah gets all of my good, my love, my affection, we don't have time. If we had all afternoon, we wouldn't have enough time to go through all the good that she gets. But <laughs> she, also, <laughs> she also gets all of my baggage, all of my bad, my selfishness, my callousness, all of my sin, my anxiety, my insecurity. All that I am is now hers. And likewise, every part of Hannah is now mine. I get all of her good, her unwavering faithfulness, her resolute trust in me, her steady loyalty, her natural sense to do what is right no matter what. And because I want to sleep in my bed tonight, I will not go through all the bad that I receive in the marriage either. <laughs> all that I am, all that I have is yours. That's the great mystery, that we no longer are two, but one flesh. And that is a living illustration of Jesus in the church, where Jesus at the cross has made us one with himself. He has united us back with the God we are so hostile against. At the cross, all of our sin, all of our baggage, all of our hostility toward God, all of the ways that we walk contrary to God's design and purpose, Jesus said, all of that is mine. I've taken it all. And I will be punished in your place because of it. And in this relationship, there is no bad that comes our way. All of Jesus' love, all of his righteousness, all of his life, his peace, 
his goodness, his blessings, his favor on our life, his guidance and protection. Jesus said, all of that is now yours. Never can it be taken away, never to be separate again. There is no hostility we could bring, no rebellion so strong, no sin so great, no unfaithfulness we could ever demonstrate to Jesus that he would ever break his promise to us. All that he is, he gives to us, and all that was once ours in sin and darkness is now his. And there will never come a separation between Jesus and his church. They were once two, but now they are one flesh. And it is because of this mystery, this living illustration of Christ's love for us, his church, that Jesus can say to us in our marriage, Chapter 10, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Friends, if you are in a marriage that is hard, that is barely making it, look to this Jesus who will never separate with you in his love. He will give you the strength to persevere. Seek him. Look to him. All that he has is yours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good to us. All that you have, all that you are, your perfect life, your sacrificial death has been credited to us unworthy sinners who do not deserve it. Us unworthy sinners who are hostile to you, who are hostile to your purposes and design. And Jesus, we come before you as beggars in need of bread. We are beggars in need of grace and strength to live out our marriages, our relationships in faithfulness. Jesus, would you give us that? I pray that you, by your grace, would help us live out this creational design that you have given, that what you have joined together, we would never think to separate because we know you will never separate from us. God, for those in here this morning who are filled with regret, I pray Lord, that they would know your forgiveness and grace and ability to restore even the most heinous sins that they've committed and that you have them here for a reason. And for others, God, who maybe in hearing this message are really thinking that their marriage is on the rocks and and it might be coming to an end, I pray that this would be a challenge to them, a good challenge that would turn their hearts to you and give them strength and encouragement to carry on. And we pray all these things knowing, Jesus, that you are sovereign, you care for us, and you love us deeply. Direct our eyes to that and help us build our life on that love. In your name we pray, amen.